Hello, you're tuned to KBBI Homer AM 890, and this is The Coffee Table. I am your host for today's program. My name is Desiree Hagan. Today, we welcome photographer and writer Seth Kantner. Seth grew up in northern Alaska. He has worked as a trapper, commercial fisherman, gardener, adjunct professor, and wilderness guide. He is the author of Ordinary Wolves, Shopping for Porcupine, a children's book, Pup and Pokey, and a collection of essays, Swallowed by the Great Land. His works have received much acclaim. He is the recipient of the Whiting Award for his debut novel, Ordinary Wolves, and the recipient of two Rasmussen Awards, as well as other awards and accolades. His most recent book, A Thousand Trails Home, addresses his personal relationship with caribou and how caribou intertwine with Alaskan history, Inupiat culture, and the lives of people living in northwestern Alaska. You can call the station with any questions at 235-7721 or email Josh, who is monitoring emails. You can email him at josh at kbbi.org. Welcome, Seth. Thank you, Desiree. I'm, hold on one second. Let me just get everything Mike suggested. Let's try that again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I had wondered if you could give a brief description of the book, but I also can do that. It's a very complex book. You know, not only does it talk about your relationship with caribou and growing up in this way, it also interweaves uh, the story, you know, the the more of the science about caribou and also the um, history from, you know, Alaskan perspective, also the native culture. There's, it's organized in a way where you have it separated by seasons. I, I guess just talking to you earlier, I realized um, <laughs> there's a lot of trails going through my book and I um, um, hadn't thought about it quite that way before, but I guess my life there in the Northwest Arctic is one of those, and and then um, the history of uh, <coughs> whalers coming and the and the the caribou getting sort of uh, set back or decimated or the anyway the crash in the population in the late 1800s. Um, course the seasons and then climate change is um, the very simple part is that I never know what I'm going to write and when I started this I had no idea what I wanted to say and it was um, eight years of bashing around in the willows trying to figure that out so I'm not a person that approaches things with a plan <laughs> yeah I liked it I was listening to an interview that you had, had done and you had said I wrote this book because nobody else wrote this book. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, that was a new thought, too, that um, <clears throat> I make my own sleds and, and uh, cabins and kayaks and, and everything. And so I started wondering if I just wrote the book that I wanted. And if somebody else had written it, I would have called it good. Um, I never planned to be a writer. I just wanted to be a hunter and trapper and... And all that so writing came to me accidentally so you talk about in this book you talk about growing up 
outside of Ambler in a sort of remote area in a sod igloo. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if you can describe your childhood a little bit for the audience. Um, well, uh, in the summer, we were 30 miles downriver from the village of Ambler, and in the winter, we were 25 <laughs> because of the way we traveled by river or over uh, onion portage and the tundra. And I say that jokingly because we were so... Uh, our lives are so intertwined with the seasons and the and the um, <clears throat> and the uh, conditions and the in the country that um, I guess now if you were in Chicago and going to some town it would remain 30 miles away all year round and the, presumably the road would be there and um, all year round and everything in my life was um, what you stepped out of this tiny little sod house to see what the day was doing and the season was doing and the animals were doing and then that decided uh, what you were doing <laughs> um and um it was small um probably 14 feet in across at first and then the whole idea of sod houses was uh, very built very low to keep the heat close to you and uh in the first years there was a, a tunnel for an entrance and <clears throat> a lot of uh, emphasis on caribou hides for sleeping on and warmth and mucklucks and parkas and um, then life was divided into so-called store-bought items which were like <laughs> versus what you could get from the land that was um, you know gunpowder and uh, ammunition and uh, flour and sugar and etc um, we didn't see people real often and so that was always maybe the biggest thing travelers you know that meant there was people out there coming or uh, and back then everybody stopped so a traveler wouldn't pass without coming inside and presumably staying as long as they wanted <laughs> that was the law of the north you had to be generous and take care of people um as time went by each year there was more um so-called stuff coming from outside more gas engines, more people speeding up their movements. Everything has been a continuum of a lot of change. And I, I'll say one more thing and then be quiet here, but I think my parents wanted to live the old ways. And so I was born there, and it was almost like they were looking backwards and face, the whole family was facing backwards, and a lot of the rest of society was facing forwards to meet you know, all the new stuff. <coughs> So your father, who you you say you always grew up calling Howie, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, at one point you say he was very strange, a very strange person, and that was just one sentence that was sort of by itself, and I was like, I wonder what he means by strange. So anyway, I was wondering if you could describe what brought your father and your family to that area. Ex accidents, you know, um, not planned, nothing planned. My dad was raised in Toledo in a uh, Catholic uh, uh, school and just wanted to get as far away from that as possible. And I think part of that was how much he, na he liked nature and how much the Catholic uh, viewpoint mistrusted nature. <laughs> um, so he went to the territory of Alaska to go to college. And then when the Project Chariot came, which was you know the attempt to bomb the North with uh, nuclear weapons, he was one of the scientists that went up to study caribou, and, and, and then he stayed. He liked the native 
um, hunting and living off the land. And so that's what, <clears throat> sorry, my throat is a little worn out from talking lately, but um, that, that's what sort of led him north. And then he admired the, you know, what back then was called the you know, Eskimos. And now I guess you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say Inupak. And that's become <coughs> touchy in this book, I guess, because I said it wrong in places. But um, so that's what started that off. And my mom and him went back and built this sod place. And, and I was born there. So it, I feel like it's a lot of, like, accident or uh, not planned. Well, with, with his work with Project Chariot, so this was where my understanding is that a nuclear bomb was set off. Is no, that correct? Uh, no, it was a plan. It was a plan. The government, yeah. And I write about that in the book. And I think when I said my dad is strange, like even to this day, I feel like he kind of cares about every tree and twig and weed. And, and he might... Um, you know, take his machete and cut those weeds down, but he's kind of cognizant of the fact that they're doing their thing beside him. And that was the, um, I wanted to say that in the book, that um, this life that we lived was sort of all these bears and wolves and whatever hunted beside us and the plants grew beside us and it, it wasn't that overpowering nature uh, lifestyle. <clears throat> so I recently had interviewed Willow Jones, who, to my understanding, grew up in the, around the same area and with similar uh, situations to how you grew up in your family. I'm wondering if you know of other white people who have embraced Inupiat subsistence culture and diet, and if you've met these people um, as an adult. Yeah, so... Back in the day, uh, you know, this is slightly blurry to me, even though I was part of it, but um, or born from it. M there was sort of a back-to-the-land movement of uh, people that were, I won't say expelled from the United States, but just sort of looking for something different. And that wasn't just on the Kobuk River where I was born. It was also on the Yukon and other places. <coughs> so those back-to-the-landers... Um, I think we're doing all sorts of different things, some more embracing the native cultures and some just building cabins and, and maybe growing potatoes or whatever. Um, but my family and, um, and Willow's parents, too, were sort of part of that movement, but also um, definitely very interested in how the natives did what they had done, always done. And, um, people at times called those people hippies, which um, may or may not have had some connection to reality, but there was also this idea that hippies smoke and drink and whatever, which those people that were part of up where I was from, they, none of them did that. They didn't drink or smoke, and, uh, smoke marijuana or whatever, <laughs> um, but um, were living pretty different lives as far as um, values and um, my parents didn't claim the land where I was born and raised because the native culture back then didn't have like individual land ownership, and so they they didn't want they were idealistic about that, and so there was um, um, various people doing that. What impresses me now is how few people are. It's like there's not another batches of these people being expelled from the 
the lower 48 culture and coming north, there's kind of a very loneliness on the land. And when I go up the Ambler River and walk around those old cabins, they're still there, but there's nobody there. And then down home, when I'm um, at the old place, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time talking to myself and remembering stuff, but there's nobody there. What, what point did you realize as a child that you, the way that your family lived was different? <clears throat> well, there's two, <laughs> there's a fork in every trail. Um, definitely whenever we went to the village, which when I was young was an arduous trip and, and take a day or two along the trail and cold. Because this, this trip was done on dog sled. Um, and then early, was... early snowmobiles, and, um, which were unreliable, and there wasn't much of a trail. And, and then for my parents, it was super stressful because they're little kids in the sled, and it doesn't take too long to freeze, you know, child. Um but so certainly the, the one fork in the road is whenever we arrived at the village, it was just painfully obvious how different we were. We wore too many furs, and they were sort of sewn in a utilitarian manner, and we didn't have enough store-bought stuff, and we talked funny, and we were white, and our faces were really red from the trail. Um, hey, you sure get red um, was you know, <laughs> a pretty common comment, among other things. Um, and so that was real obvious, but then to go to the lower 48 to visit grandma or something every five years or so, um, then it was just uh, almost too eye-opening, uh, not eye-opening, but too much um, culture shock to um, even compare yourself to those people. Um, big houses and cars and buses and, and carpet and heat that came out of the walls and all sorts of crazy stuff. So I feel like the main comparison was probably to the village, which led me to a lifelong quest to um, be Eskimo. <laughs> um, you know, I was waiting for it to happen. It hasn't yet. But um, but that that uh, the trips to the lower 48, I don't think I was busy saying, oh, I want to uh, I want to be this doctor lawyer. That wasn't happening. One of the things that I really appreciate and have noticed about your writing and that I really relate to is, you know, you have this, I get this feeling that you think of yourself as an outsider. And another thing that I also appreciate is that I get the impression from your writing that you're a very genuine and authentic person. Most of your work is autobiographical. And I'm wondering if you ever feel vulnerable or self-conscious about your writing. And are there parts of your life that you choose to omit? Oh, that's interesting. Well, you said the word ever. I think I always, if you could take ever out of there, I, I always feel very vulnerable and, um, and uncertain. And, and I know when my first book came out, I was hoping no Alaskans would ever read it. Um, I, I was hoping people in the lower 48 would read it, but somehow I had this clueless idea that maybe, hopefully, nobody in Alaska would read it because um, it's too embarrassing. And uh, <laughs> what, were, what were you afraid that they might say? Uh, pretty much everything. Um, that's a little touchy. I think when we used to go to the village, you know, I uh, would get uh, picked on a lot, and there was always, like, um, pretty harsh-directed, uh, teasing and um, and bullying and um, uh, laughter at 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 you. I guess there's a couple different things that can do to you, but 
Um, so in the telling of Ordinary Wolves, I think I was just like wanting to avoid um, revisiting, stirring that pot at the same time that tell the story. So I had this useless imaginary idea that maybe no Alaskans would read it, <laughs> um, if that makes any sense. And so, you know, things have changed over the years. I think I've gotten to this point where if I want to tell a story, you do have to um, accept that um, you just have to make that choice. Are you going to tell it and tell it honestly, or are you going to be worried about everything? I almost said a bad word, but um, <laughs> everything. <laughs> you have to remember it's radio. I know. You didn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any feedback from Native, uh, Native peoples about your portrayal of their culture? Um, so this book is pretty new, and not so much. It's a Thousand Trails Home just came out, and it was caught on a barge shipping containers for an extra eight weeks, and so I didn't even have a copy until three weeks ago or something. But, um, so the, um, uh, this book, not, not much yet. Um, Ordinary Wolves was pretty interesting because um, I think it does maybe not very long after the first summer it came out, I guess, um, Somebody cornered me in front of the Lions Club dance in Kotzebue and was like, hey, I hear you say bad things about natives. And I was like, oh, what page or whatever, you know. It's like, I don't know. I never read it. Um, and um, But then other people would say, um, oh, that part about where you wrote about drinking Lysol, that was so funny. And this would be native people. And then white people would be all just like shook up about drinking Lysol. And so the... The weird dichotomies there of um, the reactions were um, uh, interesting. And then in the village, I just, I guess, probably the um, most common, in Hamlet, the most common uh, question I got, I got, I felt like people were pretty uh, supportive of, of Ordinary Wolves. And then the most common question was, who's Donna, the woman, the, the you know, the, Inupat girl that the main character's in love with, and um, I was like, "Oh, I made I made that up, you know." And um, so I didn't feel. Um, was that true? Yeah, yeah, I totally made it up. Oh, I'd love to have a girlfriend. There was none. Um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I didn't feel like things were picked apart as much as I feared they would be. But on the other hand, um, I do want to say that I think. The culture up there is is a, a little different about that. Often, um, you know, not in your face about stuff, and so it's hard to say what's you know under the surface as far as that. The worst thing, the total worst thing about writing books and living in the Northwest Arctic is that people assume you get a million dollars for each one, um, and so your relationship with people change if they think you're rich, um, and it's a pain. And I almost said a bad word again. Um, but it's it's terrible to have people assume you're you're rich, and then you know ordinary wolves. My advance was fifteen hundred dollars, which up north is you know buy you a couple of jugs of whiskey, um, and so that assumption has been probably as bad as anything. So you really noticed a difference in how people treated you. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, different things. I always joked when I was a kid that. Um, if somebody had two sleds and somebody had no sled, that person would come and sort of camp in your living room and be like, 
sure wish I had a sled, all right, <laughs> you know, and, and the idea was you're supposed to loan your, your second sled, and things are supposed to be evened out, you're not supposed to get ahead, and so if you come out with a book and everybody assumes that means you've got, you know, you've got it made, so to speak, um, which I think there's a fork in that road, too, because if I did have it made, maybe I'd be like, oh, it's fine, but but these books don't make very much money. And then if everybody assumes that, you know, they come with this million-dollar paycheck, it's just a, a change in your relationship with people. And, and I notice that I've grown more and more isolated and spend more, a lot more time just by myself and because it's too much work to try to um, bridge some of that. So I want to change gears just a little bit. When I first picked up this book, one of the things that I first noticed is how striking the photography is. And at first glance, I thought, gosh, who is his photographer? And, you know, in reading it, you come to find out it's you, obviously. And so I was wondering, you know, if you've ever made this connection of your background as a hunter and your life as a photographer. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Um, so I grew up only wanting to hunt and trap and, you know, be Eskimo, as I said, and which is basically hunting and trapping and hauling wood and living off the land. And so, um, but with all the modern stuff and snowmobiles and, uh, you know, my first rifle was an AR-15, and what are you going to do? Hunt everything you can with your new capability? Um, and you end up with heaps of, you know, did it. With your assault rifle? Yeah, with your assault rifle. And so photography was such a great thing because it was so much harder than hunting, but it was basically hunting. Um, out there freezing and, you know, waiting and stalking and, um, and having great disappointments as the herd flees away and you got a picture of a bunch of rear ends disappearing over the mountain. And, um, and so photography was perfect for my relentless, um, hunting instinct um at that time when I, I just I didn't have a dog team anymore so it wasn't like I needed a whole bunch of protein to feed the dogs and um <clears throat> I didn't really have um a sure thing to do with those photos it wasn't like you took them down to the trading post and were able to buy a sack of flour or anything um but it you know psychologically it was perfect and then um up there unlike say Denali Park the animals were hunted and and have been hunted for a long time. So when they see you with your camera, they're like, a lot of times, getting the heck out of there. And so if I had taken myself and my camera to Denali Park, I could have presumably had a lot easier time getting a picture of a bear licking my camera than up home where the, that bear would flee because they taste good. Um, and so it was just hard incredibly hard, which is what I wanted. Um, and, uh, yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed when I've been farther north in colder conditions is that, you know, I as a person can handle the cold, but my technology can't. And I'm wondering if you had any challenges with photography in that aspect. Oh, crazy, crazy challenges. Yeah. Lots and, um, uh, lots of joking about where the battery fits in your body, but um, carrying the battery in your, your armpit. And so many times when, um, uh, back then it was film, and, um, and uh, I remember running 
up a mountain in the uh, snow barefoot with my camera and tripod and um, uh, first time I'd seen muskox and trying to get a picture and and I turned out when I'd left my boots and snow pants, I'd left my roll of film and my spare battery. And so I'm standing up there trying to warm my battery with my last three uh, uh, shots on the roll of film. And um, endless, endless um, struggles with technology and then uh, trying to keep your camera from you know, falling through the ice or uh, <clears throat> get, you know, wet or frosty or, yeah, and it never ended. Um, Tripod breaking, going through the willows, all sorts of things. Lost tripod parts. And yeah, never ended. Very expensive, too. It was terrifying when you didn't have the money to replace them. So before I forget, I want to remind the audience that you can call in your questions at the station at 235-7721. There's somebody that is taking your phone calls. And if you want to email, you can email josh at kbbi. Dot org. So I wanted also to make sure that I thanked you for writing this book. It's, it came at a very good time for me. It's really changed the way that I view hunting and my relationship to food. So now I, you know, I'm, when I go to a grocery store, or, I mean, I try to eat stuff that I have grown or caught, but I'm thinking about where did this food come from? And you know, I thought it was really funny. In the book, you talk about how, as a kid, one of the most magical things was fruit cocktails. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. it's. I mean, it's kind of a science fiction type of item, fruit cocktail, you know, the can. And I think um, perspective is such an amazing thing. And I can't believe how much stuff we have nowadays and how spoiled we are. And I think about when I was a kid, if we glanced out and there was a plastic you know, Clorox bottle floating down river, people used Clorox to pour in their drinking water back then because the health aides told them to do that. So if there was a Clorox bottle floating by, which would be, you know, very rare, but my dad would be like, get the kayak, you know, <laughs> go out and get that and save it for how many years, use it for all sorts of things. Um, and then now how we're just flinging stuff everywhere. And so some of what I'm trying to say with this book and probably my other writing too is just um, knowing where your food comes from and, and then being connected to your food and and um, and just the, uh, the endless ways that you can... Um, be connected to the animals and they're 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 providing you with the fur, food and and the plant same way and and for me it's just so lonely to be in New York City and and order food and have no idea about anything about it other than maybe you're eating it I guess but um, my life just seems to be so food oriented it's almost embarrassing at times. Well, that actually you know that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you because. I would assume on tour, you know, when I travel, there's something that happens to me where I think, I don't want this. I don't want to eat this food. I want to eat my salmon that I caught, or I want to eat, you know, the things that I grew in my garden. And I was wondering if, if there's an adjustment that happens, like when you've been touring with your book tour, I guess. Yeah, I'm uh, sadly enough, I'm, I'm a uh, litmus test for all these things because I'm totally allergic to uh, 
molds and certain plants, but also chemical food and stuff. So I can eat um, something and have a reaction, and then I, I accuse the person of, hey, did you give me some processed uh, food? I, I can't eat that crap. And um, So I take dried caribou when I go on these tours and, and carrots that I've grown, and, and, you know, I'm very fond of Costco and their cheese and whatever else you can get. Uh, that's sort of a single product there that's not a processed food. And, um, so I take that. I notice when I stay with um, people, the cats always get into my backpack and get the dried caribou out, so they're wanting it too. It's really maddening that um, my valuable uh, food that I brought on the trail and then find a cat in my room uh, opening my backpack and getting out my dried caribou. That's happened a few times. They seem to have a way of finding it. Um, and um, then when I run out, I get uh, pretty, almost like a you know dog team that wants to go home. I'm ready to go home. Um, so. so I also want to make sure that I don't get, you're such an interesting person that I want to just talk about your life, but I want to make sure I bring it back to the book. Okay. You are... You have a reading that's coming up tonight at the Homer Public Library? Yeah, 6 p.m., I believe. Um, yeah, I feel um, slightly guilty about the circuitous nature of this interview, and I hope that's not my fault. But, um, yeah, this book is new. It's It came out uh, way better than I expected. I had great terror along the way writing it and and um, and really was unsure what I wanted to say. And and tying together uh, how, how we have uh, changed as uh, people living off the land and how that relationship has changed, but then the, the lingering value of picking your own cranberries and growing your own food is, is still there. It's just sort of getting uh, hidden by the iPhone and the uh, speed that we travel now. And um, I wanted to say those things. I wanted people to know about caribou as much as possible, you know, why uh, why their hooves are, you know, sharper in the winter, et cetera. Um, but trying to put it all together and make something that was interesting and um, informative was super challenging for, for with this brain. <laughs> I don't have organizational <laughs> skills. I, I think you did a really good job. You know, it, I l appreciated how... You know, you might have a chapter on uh, the history of caribou and introduction of reindeer, and then you might have a, a different chapter that relates personally to yourself, or the next chapter would be about, you know, one of them is, one of the chapters is called The Most Political Animal, and you talk about um, the, what happened after the passing of Anilka and uh, Anxa. You know, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and the uh, Alaska National Interest Land Conservation Act. But, yeah, I, I really appreciated how, you know, it kept my attention going, you know. That was really hard to do, ter terribly hard, because Anilka and Anxin are, are very complex, and then how it affected us and people is just, I, I have no interest in writing about it, uh, but it's not like I could skip it. You can't say, oh, I don't remember that happening. Um, and so that was terrifying to write about. And then um, the politics of race and people's opinions of, of who's allowed to hunt or who should be allowed to hunt or whose land, and um, terrible to write. And, and it probably added an extra five years to the, 
process, um, but I couldn't skip it. And then I didn't want to just write a book about that crap because it would be so boring. Um, so, and I never want to bore anybody. And I would say that maybe one of the best things I have going as a writer is I'm terrified of boring anybody or <clears throat> wasting their time. So everything I write, I have to like check with myself to say, would, would I want to read that? <laughs> would, would I be bored? Um, am I learning anything? Yeah. I had a question in there. Oh, yeah, what I wanted to say was, uh, you know, you you talk about living out there in this sod igloo and how you always felt these threats, like you were threatened or felt threatened by, I think it was the Bureau of Land Management threatening to come, you know, burn your sod house yeah, down. If it would burn. Yeah. <laughs> Too wet. Um, yeah, back then BLM had... Um, so-called burn list of, um, you know, I mentioned the back to the landers, but, you know, another uh, more derogatory term for those people were squatters um, who kind of went out into the country and built a cabin or a sod house or something and then were living on land they didn't own, which is, you know, um, the government was cleaning those, <laughs> maybe like homeless people now, I don't know, but... Um, yeah, so that terror, but then probably um, I think my parents didn't hide stuff from us for uh, as kids, so maybe the idea of um, uh, if the dog team got away, dog teams like to get away and disappear into the country chasing caribou, or if the if the snowmobile later you know quit, or if the gun didn't work or something. That, or it, if a moose walked on your house. Or yeah, something. so our house was built into the side into the hill and so an animal would come down the hill and and then it's, it's moss so that there's no way an animal would know that it was on top of your structure basically it, it, the way it was built and, um, and that happened all the time <laughs> or regularly and, and my dad would rush outside and chase the moose off and but always the idea that what would happen if it just came crashing through and 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 not I think you know potentially a lot of people don't have moose on the roof uh, but I think then in a lot of uh, towns and villages and cities, there's, there's some support group, and that was the thing that I think made it different is we didn't have uh, a support group in that sense. Everything was, we're on our own. So another theme of the book is change. You talk about the change that happens when rifles were first introduced in the 1800s, and then sort of chase, uh, trace other changes uh, throughout time. How has this land changed, or you know, the culture changed just in your lifetime? Um, well, the land has changed a lot. It kind of sneaked up on us with with climate change and everything growing so fast, and the permafrost melting, and the ice thinner, and and because we travel on ice, it matters. It's like, but then the culture changes. Um, just the uh, the reuse of uh, items and the and the focus on you know what you can do with your hands and what you can get from the land is is uh, everything has changed so much by the flood of um, not just uh, technology that makes things easier but just so much stuff that that has made so um, you know you don't need to cut those trees at that time of year to make sled runners you're gonna you know, make a plastic sled. Um, 
And so all that stuff is coming from distant places now. And um, it's changed, uh, definitely changed people's connection to the, there's lost connection to the land. And, and uh, uh, who knows how to predict the weather anymore? You check it on your phone. <laughs> um, and it just goes and goes and goes from there. And so those old people had uh, just amazing skills for reading the land, understanding the land, reading ice, understanding all the different intricacies of traveling on ice and which ice does this, that, and other. Ice is a beautiful example of uh, how that relationship to the land has changed. And so now if you have a, a snowmobile that goes 98 miles an hour or something, it's pretty common to uh, not check ice. You just drive fast. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of a, a perfect example. And then you can throw that one in also with climate change because there's more people um, uh, drowning and, and, and falling through the ice. And it's, so it's a cultural change mis mixed dead nuts on with... Um, uh, climate change, and um, and then there's more to it, obviously. And and as you mentioned in the book, climate change is affecting the Arctic region, you know, at a rate quite uh, quite more drastically than other parts. Mm -hmm. You talk about you know your lifelong friend Alvin and him falling through the. Well, what happened to Alvin? Um, so we were two years apart and we grew up, uh, <clears throat> like brothers and, um, we had, uh, a lot of the, a lot of similar similarities. We liked to hunt and laugh and just be out there early on running our dogs and then later snowmobiles. And, um, um, as we got older, you know, there was a, 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 a difference between us. Alvin just, uh, carried on, uh, hunting, hunting, hunting. And I was like, worrying about populations and taking pictures and and being like oh I don't know one time we were uh, I seldom ever went after wolves but one time we we're going after wolves together and and we both shot one and then uh, when we came back down off the mountain there's a whole five or six wolves standing there and, and Alvin started shooting them and I drove in front of him uh, with my snowmobile and he had he had his AR-15 and was, you know, basically pointing it at me at that point because the wolves were behind me. And, and I said, hey, maybe you should uh, leave some. <laughs> and he never forgot that. And we, we, it, was a, it was a different difference in our um, way of approaching things. And, and uh, so anyway, you asked a question. I'm sidestepping it. But um, a few years ago, he, he was heading up to Kobuk from Ambler and, um, and uh, <clears throat> ended up crossing open water and uh, getting swept under on his machine and, and drowning. And there was a search for his body. And then uh, um, <clears throat> huge change in the, um, uh, I think as, as small communities, you kind of grew up together, you figure you're going to go through this trip together. Um, but it fits in in strange ways with, uh, you know, the, 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 the elders passing, the, the change in climate, the, there's a bunch more um, uh, open ocean now, open water in the rivers, and, and uh, you know, more uncertain travel, I guess, um, on the land, and then um, 
all those things fit together, it's just not easy, I guess. So there's one short passage I wanted to read, and you're talking about caribou that have been collared, you know, so that they can be <laughs> tracked. He says, with these new tools, computers, and still a hell of a lot of flying in small aircraft, Alaska Department of Fish and Game could finally keep track of this massive herd, see where the animals wintered, where they were aggregating, and gather all sorts of unexpected data, including the fact that nearly every collar halted at the Red Dog Mining Road and turned back north for varying durations. So I read this one sentence, and when I I talked about it before we... um, before this interview, and you know, I asked you if it was a pot shot at <laughs> the Ambler Road project, which is ooh, at least a 200-mile road that goes would go from the Dalton Highway to Ambler. And you said, "I hope it was a direct shot." <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, when, the pot shot sounds a little bad, but um, I think that you you bumped directly into some of the terrible complexities of writing this so I would write something and I'd be like oh this is a little too harsh on fishing game or park service and so a lot of times the local viewpoint is is incredibly different in the villages than it is say in Juneau or something and I would comb back through and say um uh yeah I've uh, bumped into a certain amount of uh science that's been a little harsh and rough and sloppy and maybe not very useful, but then there's a lot that's, you know, the opposite. And the, the, um, the, the reference to Red Dog is, is the same way, you know, that I wanted to say that when you do build a road, caribou don't just not see it and move at their standard migratory rate, rate, rate through that country. They, they bump into this, this crazy thing, and the same thing would happen to you and I if we were living you know, 200 miles north of nowhere, and we suddenly came to a road. Well, one thing you do when you're an animal and you get to a road is you follow it because it's great walking. Um, And so, yes, I did want to uh, reference um, just the concept of um, uh, roads and strip mines and and that we can't, I don't think we can have both. And we can pretend, but an animal like uh, caribou are affected by that arrival of so-called progress and and yes i'm totally against ambler road and i think it's a it joke that um that um they can sort of uh, pretend it's this this huge project would uh, not change the the region but but they're not even counting the fact that just pouring that kind of money into a area doesn't matter uh, caribou would be separate from that just pouring that kind of money on a, a bunch of humans changes who they are and it just goes from there so yeah I, I don't want to call it a pot shot I just I wanted to um, um, make sure that was those subjects were in the book so we got a question that uh, from a listener that asked if you would read a passage <coughs> from your book oh it was scary well I I had one passage that I really liked, uh, and I'm wondering if you can read whatever you want, you know, but uh, I really enjoyed this passage where you talked about the 
caribou as being seen as individuals and what your friend Bob told you. It's on page 296. Thanks for the page number. I would have been starting to panic here, but um, I should know where it's at, right? <clears throat> Bob Yule was an old um, uh, white guy that came up sort of right after World War II, and he was part of that, um, what did they call them? The Alaska Scouts, I guess, um, protecting Alaska during World War II. And then he was sent north to Kotzebue to um, teach Air Force guys how to um, build snow igloos in case they crashed on their planes uh, flying over the Arctic looking at whatever Russia was doing. And, um, and then he ended up meeting a native lady and sort of like my dad quickly forgot what else he was doing and went and lived there for the rest of his life. Um, and was the smartest guy I've known and, and knew all the um, Latin names and Inupac names and English names of every plant and duck and shorebird around. <clears throat> okay, here we go. It took me a while to see what Bob meant about individuals. <clears throat> He had told me that uh, these animals, animals are individuals and don't look at them as like, oh, eagles do this, but, you know, that eagle is doing that. It took me a while to see what Bob meant about individuals. I'd always been able, able to see trees that way, a bent birch, a, a birch bent and gnarled by snowdrifts, a spruce with limbs eroded by wind, and my sled dogs, too, with their various proclivities. Wild animals took me longer. One spring, while hunting for a goose for dinner, I came across a curious river otter. It swam around and then climbed onto the ice, found a crack and dove down, and came back up with a blackfish. After it had three fish, it picked them up and swam to me and dropped them a few feet away. The otter lay nearby in the sun, napping, waiting for me to eat my gift. I couldn't deny that he was different. No other otter had ever shared fish with me. <clears throat> Later one fall on the tundra behind Kotzebue, I came across a caribou calf orphaned when hunters shot its mother. A line of big bulls walked past, ignoring the scared, huddled calf. More bulls passed, and then one stopped. The big caribou walked back and stood over it. Finally, he urged the little calf to rise to its feet and then slowly chaperoned it down the trail south. I really love that passage. <laughs> and I, you know, it's something that I wish more people were aware of and how we as humans separate ourselves from the animal world and the natural world. And I thought that that, that passage sort of, uh, sort of, sums up a lot with how you view caribou and your relationship to the natural world. Yeah, I think the, the main point is how little I know and how surprised I can be. Um, and I really want to, before this slips out of my head, tell you that was the amazing thing about a camera versus a gun. Um, and I'm not against either item. But... Um, when I would hunt with my camera and sneak and sneak and sneak and then slowly, you know, rise and fire my first shot, so to speak, um, I would be get doing the best I could at that second to get a, a photo. 
but the caribou or the otter or whatever would not then flee, which would happen if you fired your first shot with a gun. And so the gun felt like there was an explosion in that experience, and everything was sort of decided, you know, something happened at that point, but there was no more going back. The camera, then you could crouch down and get closer and closer, and, and that's when you might learn that this animal had no intention of running, <laughs> uh, which, you know, when you're hunting, you have to make that decision, like, oh, I better, I better shoot, you know. Um, obviously, with a camera, you can't get it in the butt and call it good, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I don't like to do anyway. But um, So it's just so uh, interesting to me to hunt with a camera and find out that there was this whole world of experience that m you never know what's going to happen after that. F does that make sense? After that first shot, which uh, with a, as a hunter, that isn't how it works. You know, you shoot and all the geese fly or the caribou, you know, whatever. The moment's gone. Yeah, some, everything's different. Now you've announced your very loud self. <laughs> um, and if you go to the last page in the book here, it's just a photograph of this, um, this uh, full caribou s uh, snow. So I, I was out on the ice uh, uh, by Cotsview there, and I came around Lockhart Point, and and, you know, the day before, I'd see thousands of caribou crossing. And as usual, you know, the next day, there's none. And you're like, oh, where'd they all go? And I came around the uh, Lockhart Point, and there's one caribou standing there. And the day before, I don't even know how many I'd seen. And it was sort of sleeping, standing there sleeping, and and then would sort of look at me and then sleep. It, it, it didn't run off, or and it wasn't wounded or any of that stuff. It was just sort of probably coming out of the rut and, and potentially first meal you know in a while or whatever um and so i spent i don't even know how long you know an hour or so just sort of walking closer and and then i would pretend to like be grazing or not going towards it so it wouldn't think i was uh, too focused on it and um so i got all these pictures of this caribou snow on its face standing there and um, so if I'd come around that corner and just fired my first shot, it you know I either would have had a caribou or, <laughs> or not, but that whole experience wouldn't have happened. So it looks like we have about five minutes left, and I want to leave this space open for you if there's anything that you wanted to say or anything that I haven't addressed. I'm very appreciative that you found the book uh, something that you could read and wasn't too confusing and um oh no it was great I read it in two days and that was like because I I said no I have to sleep well <laughs> it's important to sleep oh good but I, good. I could have read it in one setting it was very engaging uh it's a page turner oh and I also as a visual person really appreciated all the the photographs that are interspersed in the book yeah, so it started off kind of a blurry idea, and I think uh, maybe I was supposed to write 20,000 words, and I think it's like 72,000 or something. So it ended up, I just couldn't make it short. It, uh, there's too much I needed to try to explain, which can be really tiring, but I'm glad I didn't wear you out. Well, no, I'm glad that you presented all the different facets. I, I tried. And then uh, this this fall, I... I got a caribou and it was, uh, you start skinning it and it's got that rough grittiness under the skin. And I can't remember right now, I, I, I described it in Ordinary Wolves, but I was like, oh crap, I left that out. And now I've had a couple other things. And I'll say one more thing if you got two minutes is that it's just amazing to me that so many animals um, mess with you. Mice are chewing holes in your stuff and, and pooping on your table and, 
and, and bears are coming through, whatever, and squirrels like to take your insulation. Think about um, caribou. They just don't mess with your stuff. They're good-natured. They're always sort of providing, and I wish I had included that, that um, here's this animal that we just we count on so much, and unlike other animals, we're not, we don't have to, you know, bar the door when we leave. They're not going to mess with your stuff. And um, so some of those things about caribou are, are, are trickling into my appreciation from writing the book. What is your relationship with caribou in the present day? You, do you still hunt? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's it's very, real interesting to me that I think if you're on an apple farm in uh, you know Washington State, you can be like, oh, that one's got a worm, or or that one's got a uh, bruise, and and I sure notice that with caribou now that we've had less caribou and less migration and hard to find, you're you're much more likely to be like, wow, I got a nice big bull caribou, and be this great amount of appreciation when in the past it might be like okay yeah i'll see if i can get four or five more tomorrow <laughs> and, um or uh, i'm not going to save the neck you know that's kind of tough when they got the antlers they're carrying around and i like the other parts better and so the appreciation i'm really fascinated by human um perspective and how it can change so quick and and um so the value of a caribou has really changed in the last few years because they're, they're harder to come by and i find all that stuff to be really neat yeah, I again, I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, thank you for agreeing to this interview. You are, again, doing a presentation at the Homer Public Library tonight at 6. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I can't remember which bookstore will have books there, but yeah. Well... I'm, I'm always glad to come to Homer. It's just, I forgot it was beautiful and <laughs> nice place to be, so... And thanks for making time. I uh, I haven't been interviewed much lately. I don't know. I didn't know if there's still radio going on in the world. <laughs> it's alive and well. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I thank you again because I was really nervous that all of my questions would have been the same that you had already answered a million times. So. Oh, not at all. Not at all. All right. I want to remind you that support for Coffee Table comes from the Pier 1 Theater, Homer's Community Theater, supporting community voices. Schedules and information are available on Pier 1 Productions at 226-2287 and pier1theater.org. Seth Cantler, thank you so much. Oh, you're totally welcome, Desiree.